in terms of uh, leadership, I believe that leadership is measured primarily in terms of influence. And when I think about my life and the various men who have had influence upon me, um, coaches, teachers, mentors, friends, there is no man that God has used to influence my life more than my father. Uh, I've known him all my life, obviously, uh, but I've sat under his preaching. I've lived in his home, and he has had a profound influence on me, shaping me in, into who uh, I am today. Uh, he has served as the pastor at Countryside Baptist Church in Olathe since 1989, and it started with two families as a church plant and has grown to where it is today. And I think that a big part of the legacy of my dad's ministry is not just his faithfulness to counsel and to preach and to lead, but the, the wake that he has left in terms of raising up new leaders and, and drawing to himself and, and affecting other men so that they become the kind of men who preach the word with passion, with conviction, and with clarity, and, and who love God's people with all their heart. So it's our privilege today to have my father here. He's going to open the word for us and preach to us. So I hope that you will open the word and be eager to hear what God would have to say to you. So dad, I'll invite you to come and preach God's word to us this morning. Thank you, J.D. What that means is that if you are, if you are visiting today, <clears throat> then it's sort of bait. You have to come back next week <laughs> to hear the guy who is responsible for shepherding uh, this body of, of believers. It is a privilege to be here. Um, we never knew 30 years ago when we planted the church in Overland Park, Kansas, that is called Countryside, that we would be planting churches in Brazil and in Mexico and in Lawrence. It really was off the radar, but we're so grateful for what God is doing here. Um, our church prays for this body, for your influence in this community, uh, for the gospel to be um, proclaimed and to be expressed by the lives of those who are experiencing faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who have been granted the gift of eternal life, that they would have, you would have an impact in the world, in your world. So we pray for that. We pray for God's uh, glory to be preeminent, uh, for Christ to be held up, and uh, we're excited that that is actually happening here. So it is a privilege for me to, to be with you today, and um, I'm going to do something a little bit <clears throat> different. Um, I'm actually going to be preaching this morning four different messages to you, uh, which is really weird for me, because usually what I'll do is find one text, and, and we work our way through that, but today we're going to look at four different passages. Uh, the difference between how people view God is sometimes referred to as uh, dog and cat theology. What I mean by that is a dog will say, well, you pet me and you feed me and you shelter and love me, therefore you must be God. A cat says, you feed me, you pet me, you shelter me, you love me, therefore I must be God. And this really describes how the typical person today views God. The idea is that God is here for me. That life is really all about me. And that God is here to make me happy. That's his role. And sadly, this has had an enormous impact on how people today view the subject of suffering how they understand the reality of pain. Because we all experience things in life that are, 
that are painful, right? We all experience things in life that are difficult, things that we necessarily wouldn't choose for ourselves. So what are we to do when we find ourselves in these unwanted circumstances? How are we to handle life when it hurts? And that's the question we want to consider this morning. So to do that, we're going to look at four key passages of Scripture which provide biblical wisdom for handling unwanted circumstances. So as we begin, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to 2 Chronicles chapter 20. Our first sermon will be from 2 Chronicles chapter 20. Now usually when we find ourselves in something that is really difficult, we can become overwhelmed. Because trials, now don't trials actually have the potential to distort our focus, don't they? They, can, they loom large like mountains that sometimes can obscure the sun, and all we see is the shadow. They so captivate our attention that they can dominate the landscape of our lives. They're all that we can see, and they're all that we think about. Let me give you a little bit of context for Second Chronicles 20. At this point in Israel's history, the kingdom is divided, and Jehoshaphat is king over the southern kingdom, Judah. He was one of the few kings who actually delighted in the ways of the Lord and who insisted that the people of Judah be instructed in the word of the Lord. Verses 1 and 2 indicate that one day Jehoshaphat received some shocking news that just shook him to the core. You see, the Moabites and the Ammonites had united forces together against Judah, and this, as the writer identifies it, this great multitude was now encamped only seven miles away, east of Jerusalem at a place called En Gedi. This news gripped Jehoshaphat with fear because the people were severely outnumbered, they were outmatched, and they were unprepared. And Jehoshaphat knew the score. They were facing certain annihilation. This is a big deal. When you find yourself in a crisis, when you find yourself in something that catches you off guard, something that is hard, something that is painful, something that is overwhelming, your first steps will be your most important. And your first step to handling unwanted circumstances is to refocus your attention on God. Refocus your attention on God. You see, a heart that is gripped by fear must turn to God. In Psalm chapter or Psalm 56, verse 3, Jehoshaphat's great, great, great grandfather David said this: When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. Fear is not a bad thing. It is what we do when we are afraid that matters. And this is precisely what Jehoshaphat did. In his fear, he guided his heart to refocus his attention on God. Look at verses 3 and 4. It says, Then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord 
From all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. You see, in his fear, Jehoshaphat immediately set his face, determined to seek the Lord. And he called on everyone in Judah to seek the Lord with him. And in Jehoshaphat's prayer during this crisis, we see four ways to refocus our attention on God. Number one, we need to first acknowledge God's sovereign power. We need to acknowledge God's sovereign power. Because he knew that God was sovereign over all that happens in life, Jehoshaphat prayed in verse 6. He said, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nation. In your hand are power and might, so that none is able to withstand you. You see, when we are in the midst of something difficult, it is important that we acknowledge that God is actually in control of the very crisis that we are in. What this does is to put our circumstances in perspective. God is sovereign. And since God is sovereign over the entire universe, what this means is that he's not only sovereign over every star and every planet and every asteroid, but he's also sovereign over every particle and every microorganism and every virus and every germ. It means that God is sovereign over every nation and every government and every army, including every industry and business and economy. And it means that God is sovereign over every animal and every insect and every individual person. So when our crisis were to recall who God is, that he is sovereign over every aspect of our lives. So as you look to the Lord, acknowledge, acknowledge his sovereignty. Secondly, recall God's works. In verse 7, I want you to notice that Jehoshaphat recalled what God had done in the past for his people. Here's what he said, and he's talking to God again. He says, did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel? And give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? You see, one of the best ways to regain perspective is to look in Scripture and see the powerful works of God. And that's what Jehoshaphat did here. He looked back and he recalled what God had done for his people. This not only glorifies God when we do this, but it, it fortifies our hearts and it strengthens our confidence in him. So you can look back in scripture and see page after page after page of God's faithfulness working on behalf of his people. And you can look in your life, in the history of your life personally, and see what God has done in your life to prove his faithfulness. Thirdly, as you look to God, you should rehearse his promises. Look at verse 9. Jehoshaphat says to God, if disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. Do you know what he's doing here? He is actually rehearsing back to God a promise that God had made to his people Israel. You see, the temple was a house of prayer. 
And so here now in the temple, Jehoshaphat is rehearsing God's promise to listen to his people, to hear them when they pray to him there. And at that moment, the entire kingdom of Judah was gathered at the temple, and they were all with one heart seeking the Lord. This was an act of faith that was based on a promise in God's word. But what about us? We have no temple today. We're not going to get on a flight and go to Jerusalem and go over to the Western Wall and, and, and pray to God and ask for help in our time of crisis. So what do we do? What do we do? God has promised believers in Christ that when we are in a time of need, we can actually draw near, not to a temple, but to God personally in his throne of grace. The writer of Hebrews says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Why? So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's Hebrews 4.16. So acknowledge God's sovereignty. Recall God's works. Rehearse God's promises. And then forth, as you look to the Lord, confess your dependence on him. Confess your dependence on him. On him. In verse 12, <clears throat> Jehoshaphat confessed that they were completely powerless to handle this crisis. They acknowledged that. But they also acknowledged that they were totally depending on God in that moment. Here's what Jehoshaphat said. Verse 12, O oh, our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Don't you love that? I don't know what to do. We don't have a clue what to do. We are helpless, but we're looking to you. That's a great place to be. What do you do when you don't know what to do? You direct your attention, your eyes, your focus to the God who does. So what happened? Well, verse 14 says that God spoke to the people through the prophet Jehaziel. And Jehaziel said in verse 15, thus says the Lord to you. So this is directly from God through Jehaziel to them. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours, but God's. You know, there is a sense in which every battle in life, everything we face in life as believers in Christ is God's. That's why we must look to him. That's why we must rely on him. You see, through Jehaziel, God said in verse 17, you will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. Tomorrow, go out against them, and the Lord will be with you. So Jehoshaphat said, God, we don't know what to do. We don't have a clue, but our eyes are in you. And God said, here's what you do. Basically, stand firm right where you are. Don't panic and watch God work. So when you find yourself in unwanted circumstances, refocus your attention on God. Seek him. Set your heart. Set your heart to seek the Lord. But that's not the only thing that we should do. Turn to Genesis chapter 50. Genesis chapter 50, we come to the second sermon this morning. You know, sometimes we can go through things in life that can be so disturbing that we wonder if God could actually have anything to do with it, right? 
Do you realize that what God took you through yesterday prepared you for where you are today? And what God is taking you through today is actually preparing you for where you will be and what you will face tomorrow. Genesis 50 actually concludes the story of Joseph that began back in Genesis 37. And I love the story of Joseph because it shows God working through something difficult and painful to accomplish his good purpose. In verse 20 of this chapter, Joseph recalls the brutal treatment that he had experienced at the hands of his brothers. And he reminds them that God used that for his good purpose. Here's what he said. As for you, you meant you intended evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. We don't often think about this, but God works through pain to accomplish what at the time we may not even be able to see or comprehend. So when you find yourself in in unwanted circumstances, you not only need to refocus your attention on God, secondly, you need to recognize you are exactly where you need to be. You're exactly where God wants you. Joseph said in verse 20 that even though what they did to Joseph was evil, God intended to use that for good. What this means practically is that every twist at every painful turn in Joseph's life, he was exactly where God wanted him to be. Did you know that while Joseph was going through all the rejection and all the pain and all the suffering and all the trouble, he never knew why any of it was happening? He didn't know until it was all over. Think about what Joseph went through. Joseph was severely beaten by his brothers. He was thrown into an empty cistern. They were going to kill him, but instead they sold him into slavery. But... That was exactly where he needed to be because Joseph was then taken down to Egypt as a slave where he was sold to Potiphar, the head of Pharaoh's security force. And that was exactly where Joseph needed to be because in Potiphar's house, Joseph was falsely accused of rape and he was thrown into prison. And that was exactly where he needed to be because even as he languished, forgotten in prison for several years... He interpreted the dream of Pharaoh's cupbearer, and that was exactly where he needed to be because one day Pharaoh became troubled about a couple of dreams that he couldn't understand, and his cupbearer told him how a prisoner named Joseph could interpret dreams. So Pharaoh immediately ordered Joseph to be released and brought before him. That's a quick summary of the first painful part of Joseph's life, but listen, Joseph, did you know he was only 17 years old when he was sold by his brothers into slavery? And he wasn't released by Pharaoh until he was 32. What this means is that for 15 long years, Joseph had no idea why wave after wave after wave of calamity came into his life. However, every painful twist was all part of God's good purpose. Joseph told Pharaoh his dreams, that through these dreams, God was revealing what he was intending to do. There would be seven 
years of, of great bountiful harvest, those would be followed by seven years of famine throughout the world. And so elated, Pharaoh made Joseph his prime minister. And Joseph administrated a campaign to store up as much grain as possible during the years of bountiful harvest. And so seven years later, when the famine came, Jacob, his father, and all of his brothers, the tribes of Israel, were brought into Egypt and kept alive through Joseph. You see, every painful, unwanted circumstance in Joseph's life was part of God's purpose to preserve a nation, Israel, to get them down to Egypt so they could become a great people. You see, God used the evil that his brothers did in order to accomplish something good. You may not understand what God is doing in your pain, but you must recognize that you are exactly where God wants you to be. The invisible hand of God is always at work accomplishing his purpose through everything that we experience, even through the good and the bad and the ugly. This doesn't mean that what you experience won't be difficult or won't be painful. What it does mean is that God will use it and he won't waste it. When you experience something in life that's painful, something that's difficult, remember that you're right where you need to be because through it, God is accomplishing his purpose. We not be able to see it now, but oh, friends, one day when we get to heaven, we are going to be able to understand perfectly that we were exactly where we needed to be and that not once did God ever make a mistake. There's never been in the history of eternity one utterance from God's mouth where he said, oops. Not once has God ever said, now we need to come up with a plan B. You are exactly where God wants you to be. But there's a third thing that you need to do when you face something that's unwanted. And so for our third sermon, I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Now the Apostle Paul, who wrote 2 Corinthians, was no stranger to unwanted circumstances. He had been battered and abused and, and incarcerated several times for the sake of the gospel. In 2 Corinthians 11, he chronicled how he had been severely whipped on five occasions, how he had been beaten with rods uh, three times, how he had even been stoned and left for dead. Paul's life, since the time that he was converted in Acts 9, his life from that point on was filled with things that he would not have chosen for himself. In chapter 12, he wrote that God had given him revelation that was so great that it couldn't even be repeated. And then he said this in verses 7 through 10. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. So what he says is to keep me grounded and not to get a big head about what God had shown me, 
I was given what was called a thorn in the flesh, something painful, something unwanted. So what did Paul do? Well, actually, Paul did what most of us do in situations like that. In verse 8, he pleaded with the Lord to remove it, just to take it away. Look at verse 8. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. In other words, on three separate occasions, three seasons of prayer and fasting, Paul asked God, begged God to remove it from him. But each season of prayer was met with only silence. We can relate to that, can't we? I mean, we just went out of the pain. We went out of the danger. We went out of the misery that we're in. And we think sometimes that the only way that God can be glorified is if he delivers me, right? But often our prayer for deliverance is met with a silent no from God. But notice that while God didn't take away the thorn, he reminded Paul of something he had been given that would actually enable him to endure. In verse 9 it says, But he, that is the Lord, said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect, that is, it is complete in weakness. What is it that enables us to handle the difficult and sometimes painful, unwanted circumstances of life? It's God's grace. It's God's grace. So while we must refocus our attention on God, and we must recognize that we're exactly where we need to be, thirdly, we must rely on the grace God provides in our need. Rely on the grace God provides in that time of need. So in essence, the Lord told Paul, listen, while you may think that you can't survive where I have you right now, I want you to know that through my grace you can because it is ideally suited for what you are going through. You see, friends, the, the grace that saves us and makes us saints is the same grace that supports us and makes us strong. You see, along with the difficulties that we experience also comes the grace to endure those difficulties. But here's the deal. In order for you and me to experience God's gracious and all-sufficient power, we have to be at a place of weakness. We have to be at a place of weakness. And that's why the Lord said Paul needed his grace. He said, my power is made perfect in weakness. This actually is really, really good news. So when you are at a place of need, you're at a place of pain, a place of difficulty, a place where in your weakness you've come to the end of yourself, then you are at a place where God's enabling grace can make you strong so that you can handle what you're going through. And this is why Paul said in verses 9 through 10, Therefore, <clears throat> I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. Why? What's the big deal about being so weak and insufficient in yourself, Paul? It's so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, Content with insults, content with hardships, content with persecutions, content with calamities. 
What's your problem, Paul? How can you be content with all of that stuff? Well, here's why. For when I am weak, when I am weak in myself, then I am strong because of the grace that God gives to enable my strength. So how did Paul come to the place where he was content with weakness and hardship and calamities? How was he at peace with his unwanted circumstances in life? It was by relying on the grace that God provided in his need. So when you experience unwanted circumstances in life, circumstances that are difficult and painful and unwanted, you need to refocus your attention on God. You need to recognize you're exactly where you need to be. And thirdly, you need to rely on God's grace in your time of need. However, there's a fourth thing that you need to do. And for the fourth sermon this morning, I want you to turn to Job chapter 42. Job 42. The question that we all wonder when we go through something that's difficult and painful is, why? Isn't that what we ask? Why? Why, God? Why me? Why now? Right? That's our, that's our number one question that we want to know. But isn't it amazing how very seldom we're ever given the answer to that question? This may shock some of you, but God does not owe you an explanation for what he does or why he does it. Newsflash, he's God, you are not. All right? Nearly everyone, I think, is familiar with the story of Job. I think with the exception of the Lord Jesus, Job suffered more catastrophes in one day than perhaps any other person who ever lived. If you go through the book of Job, it begins by describing a godly man who walked with God and was upright and blameless because he feared God and he shunned evil. It starts out with Job being a really godly man. But the scene in chapter 1 very quickly shifts from earth to heaven where a conversation between God and Satan is disclosed. And through this private dialogue, we are given a behind-the-scenes look that provides insight that Job never, ever in the entire book, and as far as we know, in his entire life, he's never given. You see, his suffering was not because he sinned, and it was not because God was cruel or God was angry. Job's suffering was the result of God allowing Satan to afflict him. But Job never knew that. What he knew was that in just one day, his world was turned upside down, and he find himself, found himself in a situation in life that he definitely, definitely would have never chosen for himself. First... Everything that Job owned was either stolen or destroyed. In one day, if you do the math, he lost 11,000 head of livestock. And all of his servants who, who worked those livestock were killed. So in one day, Job was left penniless. It would be the same as, as everything that you own, all your retirement, all your investments, everything, your bank accounts, wiped out in one day, gone. He's penniless. And if that wasn't bad enough, second, all of Job's sons and daughters were killed. As the seven sons and three daughters gathered in their eldest brother's house for a celebration, a tornado came and destroyed uh, the house, killing all ten of them who were inside. So not only was Job penniless, but now he was childless in the same day. 
And if that wasn't bad enough, in his greatest time of grief, Job's health was afflicted with a, a dreadful, terrible disease. In chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, it says that Job was afflicted with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And his condition was so bad that Job took pieces of broken pottery and just scraped himself to try to find some relief as he sat in the ashes. The disease that Job experienced was, I mean, we get a, a comprehensive look at it throughout the book, and it was, it was dreadful. It caused his skin to rot. In Job 7 and verse 5, he says, My flesh is clothed with worms and dirt. My skin hardens and then breaks out afresh. No relief. In Job 30, verse 30, he says, My skin turns black and falls from me, and my bones burn with heat. In Job 30, 17, he says, The pain that gnaws me takes no rest. Terrible disease. It caused severe weight loss. In Job 19.20, he says, My bones stick to my skin and to my flesh, and I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. Elihu, one of the counselors who tried to give Job perspective, says, referring to Job in Job 33.21, that his flesh is so wasted away that it cannot be seen, and his bones that were not seen stick out. You see a picture of an emaciated misery inflicted maggot ridden skin sloughing off his body that condition is terrible not only that but he couldn't even sleep at night job said he had night terrors he says in job 7 13 through 15 when i say that my bed will comfort me my couch will ease my complaints then you scare me with dreams and terrify me with visions so that I would choose strangling and death rather than my bones. So when one day Job was left penniless and childless and his health was completely decimated. But as bad as all of that was, that was not the worst part for Job. The worst part for him was that in all of it, God seemed distant and detached. Job was looking for God in the midst of all his unwanted pain, but it seemed that God had just deserted him at what seemed to be his time of greatest need. In Job 23, verses 8 and 9, he says, Behold, I go forward, but he's not there. Backward, but I do not perceive him. On the left hand, when he is working, I do not behold him. He turns to the right hand, but I do not see him. In Job 30, verses 20 and 21, he says, I cry to you for help, and you do not answer me. I stand, and you only look at me. You've turned cruel to me with the might of your hand. You persecute me. That's pretty despair, pretty much despair. He's at the end. His misery is beyond, I think, what any of us can imagine. He's lost everything, and he feels as if God himself is just persecuting him and the cumulative effect that it had on job rocked him to the core physically and emotionally and mentally and spiritually and as job languished in the pain of this unimaginable trauma his mind was consumed with the same question that we often ask why why the majority of the book of Job is actually really discouraging. It records the speeches of Job's four friends 
And along with Job, what they try to do is to make sense out of why God allows for suffering. But the problem is they each try to approach the subject from the perspective of human reasoning. They're trying to figure God out through human reasoning. Job's friends argue that the reason Job is suffering is because he has sin in his life and that God is punishing him for it. But Job insists that it's not because of sin. It's because God is cruel to him. God has turned his, his back on Job and turned against Job for no legitimate reason whatsoever. And so from chapter 3 all the way to chapter 37, these guys pontificate on why Job was suffering. And then we come to chapter 38. And finally, in chapter 38, God speaks up. But what's shocking is that God doesn't give an answer for why Job is suffering. Instead, what he does is just ask Job lots of questions. In fact, he asks 70 of them. God asks questions like this. He says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Have you entered the spring of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare it. Declare it if you know. And it goes like this for four chapters. And in that time, God makes no mention of Job's condition. He makes no mention of Job's cries for help. And he doesn't offer an explanation as to why all this is happening in Job's life. And we have to ask the question, why is that? And here's the answer. It is simply because that is not what Job needs. How would knowing why make your situation better? It wouldn't. That's not what you need. What Job needs is the very thing that God provides. You see, because Job needs to learn to trust in the infinite wisdom of God God provides for Job in those four chapters an incredible description of who he is in his power, who he is in his authority, who he is in his majesty. And so as we experience underwater circumstances in life, here's the fourth point. We need to respond by trusting God's infinite wisdom. Respond by trusting God's infinite wisdom. You see, when Job was confronted with the, the, the power and authority and majesty of God, you know what it did? It put everything in perspective for Job. And what Job learned was that in his misery and pain, the greatest need that he had was to know God better and to trust in his infinite wisdom. And so in chapter 42, it's where we... Are, Job finally responds to God. And in his response, verses 1 through 6, we find three lessons that Job learned that help us understand what the pain of unwanted circumstances can enable. First, when we trust God's infinite wisdom, it enables us to know God in a more significant way. When we trust God's infinite wisdom, it enables us to know God in a more significant way. You see, Job came to understand the wisdom of God's power and purpose. Look at verse 2. Job said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. You see, after God displayed his glorious wisdom in chapters 38 through 41, Job finally realized that the same God who created all things and who was over his creation 
was also over Job and his suffering. Therefore, because of that, nothing can hinder God's purpose. You see, Job had previously declared that the reason he was suffering was because God was angry, God was being cruel, and God was persecuting him for no reason at all. And so God had actually asked him in chapter 38, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? And so now in verse 3, Job is thinking of that question that God had asked him, and he responds to God in verse 3. He said, you asked, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? He says, God, I just have to say, I didn't know what I was talking about. I just have to confess, I didn't know what I was talking about. Job said to God, I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. In other words, Job was saying, Lord, I, I thought I knew your purpose, but I was a complete idiot. I didn't know your purpose. Your wisdom is perfect. Your purpose is wonderful. And I was talking to you about things that I didn't understand, things I was ignorant of. Again, in verse 4, Job goes back to something that God said earlier in chapter 38. God had said, hear and I will speak. I will question you and you will make it known to me. And Job's response to that in verse 5 was, I heard you by the hearing of the ear. But now my eye sees you. He says, God, I, I knew something about you. But now I see clearly. He, Job didn't physically see God. But he saw God's infinite wisdom displayed in who he was as God. In other words, Job was saying that his knowledge of God is now so much more intimate because of what he knows about God because of what he went through. When we trust God's infinite wisdom, our pain and suffering enables us to know God in a more significant way. Then in verse 6, we see something else. When we trust God's infinite wisdom, it enables us to respond to God in a more humble way. Job said in verse 6, Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. You see, because Job now saw God more fully, here's the deal. He was able to see himself more clearly. And as he began to trust God's infinite wisdom in his suffering, his pride and his self-centeredness was exposed. And so Job repented. He had been humbled. And in his brokenness, he turned from his pride and he turned from his presumption of judging God. And instead, he just trusted what God was doing. You see, folks, in the crucible of life, the heat of adversity causes the dross of our lives to separate from the gold so that that dross can be scraped off. So when we trust God's infinite wisdom, it enables us to know God in a more significant way and then respond to God in a more humble way. And then thirdly, when we trust God's infinite wisdom, it enables us to follow God in a more complete way. You see, in his suffering, Job learned that life doesn't revolve around him and what he knows. It revolves around God and his wisdom. And while we may never know the specific reason or reasons for our suffering, we must always trust in the perfect 
wisdom of a good and sovereign God who does everything he does for his own divine purposes so that he, at the end of the day, receives glory. So when we encounter something that we can't understand, instead of demanding to know why, we must choose to trust God in his wisdom and then follow him. Can God be trusted? What's the answer, class? Yes. yes. God can be trusted. Even when we don't know why he's doing what he's doing, we can trust him in that in his infinite wisdom, he makes no mistakes. So what are you facing today? What are you facing today? Are you in one of those unwanted seasons of life right now? I mean, going through something that you wouldn't choose for yourself? Let me just urge you, admonish you, refocus your attention on God this morning. Look to him. Have you become so focused on your issues that they've become larger in your mind to you than God? Set some time aside today. Look to him. Confess your total dependence on him in this thing. You may not be able to see it, but you're exactly where God wants you to be. That doesn't always feel good to say that. No matter what happens, you're where God can manifest to you his grace in unique ways. You're at a place where his grace can strengthen you. And so as he does, you need to rely on that grace and respond by trusting in God's infinite wisdom. For some of you, it could be that God's calling on you to trust in him today. It's no accident that you're here. Would you be willing to surrender your heart to a good and merciful God? See, what we need most in life is mercy. Because the scripture says that God is so holy that he cannot look favorably upon sin. And you know that's a problem because we're all sinners. There's none who are righteous. And the punishment, the just deserved punishment for sin is death. It's the wrath of God for all eternity. But here's the good news. We are spared the wrath of God as we flee to God for mercy. And how is that expressed? It's through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ came to this earth as God in human flesh so that he could go to the cross as having lived a perfect life and be the substitute for your sin. God laid upon Jesus the sins of everyone who would ever believe and God was satisfied with that payment. And so now, all who turn from their sin to embrace Jesus as Lord and Savior experience the mercy and grace of God in salvation. Will you turn to him today? Maybe that's why you're here this morning. Father, we thank you for your goodness, your grace, your mercy. We don't always understand you. We don't always understand why you do what you do. But we trust you. We trust you. I pray for those this morning whose lives are being wrenched and life is hard and it's painful and there's questions and there's doubts. I pray this morning they've seen a good God who is worth trusting. 
And for those who don't know you, would the Spirit of God work in their hearts, draw them to yourself, save them, give them life in Christ for your glory. Amen.